This week on Dig Me Out. Let me let me just double check because I don't want to you know speak out of my butt here. Um, but I'm pretty sure. Tim and Jay review Hi-Fi Sci-Fi by Drama Rama. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Benici, and joining me, as always, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it is our first episode of Season 5, number 208 overall. The 2015 season is kicking off with a requested review. Requested, requested review. review. Jay, are you excited for our new year? I am. I am. Lots of stuff that's going to be yeah. happening this year. We're shaking it up, so you'll still get all the the cool reviews, mm-hmm. discoveries, but uh, there'll be some new things to talk about. We'll be able to, I think, dig into the 90s a little deeper, maybe pick up some conversations that we've had tangentially during reviews and yep. continue those. Yeah, if you haven't had a chance to check out our year uh in review episode for 2014, the last episode that came out, we discuss uh, what we're going to be doing, what our plans are for 2014. Lots of new things going on, uh, interviews, roundtables, new guests, topics, theme months, all sorts of stuff. So be sure to check that out. This week, one of our veteran listeners, one of our old guard uh he, uh, he has a suggested album for us to uh, listen to, and it's Dramarama, or Dramarama, depending on where you're from in the States, and their 1993 album, Hi-Fi Sci-Fi. Who, who's, who requested it? Mr. Gavin Reed from All right. Australia. I believe this is his 407th request, which um, I'm not sure how that works out because we've only had 208 episodes, but... He's made Does a lot of requests. Get, he doesn't give us American bands often, does he? No, not really. Gives us. Uh, this is like the second one. Something with a more international flair. Yeah, usually it's uh, you know they're Australian bands, which we appreciate. We've really gotten to uh, explore the variety of Australian bands that we didn't know about from the '90s, and it's uh, it's been an education over the last couple of years. And I'm sure we're going to get to some more this year. We might even do an entire month on Australia. <laughs> Because you know what 1995 is, Jay? It's the year of Silverchair. Yeah. Yeah. Prepping for our next uh, roundtable. I saw that. That'll be fun to revisit quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very quickly. Very quickly. Uh, but there are a ton of other really interesting bands uh, from that time period. And I'm sure we're going to get to that. But this week, we are reviewing not an Australian band, but a U.S. band, Dramarama. They're actually from Jersey, and then they ended up in L.A. after that. Jay, were you familiar with the band Dramarama? Uh, I was familiar with the name and the, the uh, what's the song, Anything, Anything? Is that yes, the it? from um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Is Pink that Tracers. what it's from? Well, that's where it got some publicity from that movie, but it, it was released before that. It's one of those songs I don't know. I don't know where I know it from, but I just know it, and uh, I vaguely knew you know the band name associated with that i have no idea where i heard the song it's instantly recognizable 
Yeah, I, I remembered the song when I I didn't remember it from the title, but then when I went back and listened to the song, I was like, oh god, yeah, I totally remember this song. But I was completely wrong on what the band was. I thought that they, this was like a synth pop, Duran Duran meets you know, yeah, an emotion like kind yeah. of band or something. I had no idea that they are not that. Uh, yeah, I more would have associated them with like a mid eighties something like you just described or even like uh i don't know alternative kind of gothy early cult Susie and the banshees what do you call that gothy kind of it's goth or that's if i had to describe i guess it's i had to guess what this band was before hearing this record or exploring them any further that's what i would assume they were close to beggar's banquet something right well let's talk about uh since we're both a bit off on the the history of this band and what they sound like. Let's actually do some history of the band. History of the band. So Dramarama was formed in uh, New Jersey in 1982 by John Easdale, who's a singer, and Chris Carter, the original bass player, who at one point left the band. And actually, there's been 14 different members who have played in Dramarama, not including the various guest musicians they've had um, that have included Mick Taylor and Nicky Hopkins, who played with the Stones, and Clem Burke from uh, Blondie. They've had a lot of different people come in and play on their records. Uh, Sylvain Sylvain from Johnny Thunder's band, I believe. So in 1984, 1984, Dramarama released their first EP called Comedy. So they self-funded the release of this uh EP, and this is an interesting story. It didn't really get any play here in the United States, but it did actually get them some publicity and some play over in France. So when they actually went to release their full-length album, Cinema Verite, it came out in France first on New Rose Records. That got them played on K-Rock in L.A. by famous disc jockey Rodney uh, Bingenheimer who thought the band was French. He was like, oh, this is a cool new French band. Turns out <laughs> they weren't. They're from Jersey. That's the uh, one of the oldest tricks in the book, isn't it? Like, exactly. So they ended up the then... 60s did that. They ended up then getting... Well, Jimmy, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. year up first, yeah. Um, they ended up then signing and getting a, a deal uh, with a U.S. label. So they started working on uh, their next record, and... That would produce Stuck in Wonderama Land, but they actually produced enough material for three records, so they decided to release a foreign-only record. It was under the name The Bent-Backed Tulips, and it was called Looking Through, so it wasn't under the name Dramarama. They also released uh, the album uh, Box Office Bomb, and... In 1980, that was in 1987, 89 was stuck in Wonderama Land, and then 1989 also was Bent Back Tulips looking through. So two years later, they signed to, not signed, but they were on Chameleon Records and they released the album Vinyl. And then their final Chameleon release was Hi-Fi Sci-Fi, the album that we're going to be reviewing. The band broke up for 12 years. Um, John Easdale continued performing and playing with various bands and it was thanks to the tv show i think it was short-lived i don't think it was on for very long um called bands reunited jay do you remember that tv show yeah yeah i do so in january of 2004 
they were featured on that show and they ended up getting back together to play a K-Rock festival, which was attended by almost 80,000 people. And two years or a year after that, they released the studio album Everything Dies, which is the last studio album that the band released. There's rumors of possibly a new Dramarama album, but as of yet, it's been nine years and nothing has been produced. So if you would like to suggest an album for us to review, please visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. We did get some Facebook feedback on this record. Um, Gavin Reed, the person who suggested this, said, I found these guys through a live version of Anything Anything, then moved backwards through the catalog. Then this arrives. Sounds like a band that may have broken up but put out one last album as alt-rock was selling, but they couldn't decide if they were a loud band or a soft band. Still a cool album that I listen to often. Chip Midnight, friend of the show, says, Work for Food always reminds me of Fig Dish. By this point, Dramarama was an already established band, but this was my first exposure to them. Wouldn't be wouldn't find out until years later that they were the band that wrote and recorded Anything Anything, which I first heard when Janie Lane of Warrant covered it. Saw, this on, saw them on this tour at Bogarts in Cincinnati. I think Slim Dunlap opened, and it was a pathetically small crowd. Slim Dunlap, of course, of the replacements. And then the band themselves, Dramarama, climbed, uh, chimed in and said, Wow, hey, with all the bands and all the records out there, thanks for noticing. As Eeyore might say, cheers, mates. So that's that. We don't often get a Facebook feedback from the actual folks that we're reviewing, so that's neat. Yeah, very cool. You know what's weird about that um, anything, anything song is the, uh, the ver- why, why is it the version that I know and everybody knows that the live version doesn't seem like it's the live. That's the one I recognize. I don't know. Uh, the video, I looked at the official video from like 1986 or whenever it was, or 85, and it was a studio version. Hmm. They yeah, did put out a greatest hits after this album that we're reviewing, and it, they might have included a live version on that. I don't know the track listing, so possibly it came from there. Well, okay. All right. So let's talk about this. <laughs> Awkward. It was silence. kind of rhetorical, but. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Was it Jay? Was it? Well, <laughs> Wait, who? Huh? Jay, let's talk about this record. Let's do that. Let's talk about Dramarama. Hi-Fi Sci-Fi from 1993. You and I both familiar with the one single that's not from this record, not really familiar with the band overall. I'm going to throw it to you, Jay. Tell me uh, some positives that stood out for you on this record that you liked. You can tell it's a maturing or a mature band. Um, Mm -hmm. There's just something about, I don't know if it's the vocal and just the overall performances. There's a savviness um, and a polish here that you can tell at least to my ears, you know, sounds like a, a band that's been around a while or at least guys who've played, you know, for quite a while. And I think that works really well with certain material here. And there's other material where it doesn't. When it works well, you know, I think something like Word for Food, you know, is upbeat. It has um, kind of a replacements or kind of Goo Goo Dolls-ish early, you know, po- power pop with a little bit of punk attitude, pretty hooky, you know, pretty melodic, not a, not a huge, you know, chorus. The chorus isn't fantastic, but, um, the verses are really strong and, uh, you know, they just sound like a really strong, confident band. 
when they go into something like Shadowless Heart right after that, um, they can take the tempo down and they sound, um, you know, really moody. It has a kind of a spooky kind of vibe to it. And the vocal um, range that the singer has can deliver that just as well, you know. I think those two modes for this band seem to, to really work well with, with their sound and who they are. But I, to me, it's it's a fairly inconsistent record. Mm-hmm. You have moments like that, which I think work really well. Um, another one would be like um, Senseless Fun when they go acoustic. I think it works really well. It's uh, kind of, I guess, harkens back a little to, bit maybe to some, you know, 70s classic rock ballad-ish kind of roots there. And I think they pull that off really well. I think it fits their, you know, kind of a, a more seasoned experience kind of band approach. Um, approach is almost like a stonesy kind of slow song feel. And I think that works really well. There's a couple others that are in one of those three categories, either up-tempo, mid-tempo, or slow, that work almost as good or close to it. But I think, to me, that stretch of the record is really where where the, um, the strength of the band is shown. Well, I, I'm going to agree with you. I think it is an inconsistent record. I think the highs are really high. Yeah. Um, and I think that the maturity and the confidence really bolsters those songs that are the highest of the highs on this record. I think that I, the one thing that I appreciated a, a great deal was his uh, lyrics. Um, he's able to, you know, anything, anything is a bit of a, it's got a bit of an like a smart ass kind of attitude to it. And that carries through to this. I think that's probably a, a key to John Easdale's lyric writing is that there's a lot of, you know, tongue in cheek, but it's funny, but not it's it's fun, but not funny. He's not writing jokes, but he's he's very wordy and very um, smart with his lyrics, but able to keep them fairly simple and on point. Mm. Um, where there's there's a couple songs in the back half of the record, which are about drug use and about, I guess, stereotypical they're an LA band at this point so I'm guessing like stereotypical like LA scenester drug use and stuff and then there's uh, there seems to be a a number of songs in the first half of the record which are about basically being musicians and being in a band Um, work for food is kind of I get the sense that it's about you know a band struggling and 
struggling for their art and ended up homeless and they'll work for food and you know you got where's the manual and senseless fund all kind of reference in some way being musicians and and sort of working in this industry that grinds through bands and stuff and I, I like the fact that it's referencing these things but not doing it in such a way that you know is whiny or kind of off-putting to someone who's not in a band I think that they're it's pretty universal you can kind of interpret the lyrics how you want in terms of a lot of those songs uh but that's what it felt to me when i was listening to them and you mentioned about work for food not having a huge hook i don't i didn't feel like a lot of the songs have necessarily a big hook which i kind of found a little disappointing because i was hoping that there would be more the music sounds like there should be big hooks yeah but the vocals don't necessarily ever get there they have good choruses but they're mm-hmm. not sing along i guess i was hoping for more in that like power pop range which you mentioned but they're a bit more restrained than that i heard two bands that i heard a lot of in reference to this band when i was reading about them was their love of the stones which you know they have nicky hopkins piano player from play with the stones playing on this record and then they had mick taylor on you know a previous record obviously Stones guitarists are some of the best Stones records. Um, and then the other one is uh, the New York Dolls. Mm. And you can kind of hear that in some of the raggedness of some of the more up-tempo songs mm-hmm. on the record. But they don't have the killer chorus. There's no personality crisis. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, even even when the times when they go and they get into this, like, dead flowers sort of twang almost mm. with some of the songs, they don't quite get that dead flowers hook that you're kind of looking for songs are like they're almost there you just want them to like push the pedal down a little bit harder to get the gas going and and hit that big chorus part it never quite gets there they kind of stay at like second gear or third gear for most of the time yeah like word for food like you said it's a well-written chorus it's a good chorus and it gets hookier the more you listen to it but on Mm -hmm. first listen it sets up an expectation that you're going to get, you know, kind of really blown out of the water with this, you know, awesome chorus. And it's just quite not quite there. And it's not to say that on repeated listen, you don't appreciate it in a different way and it's still not a good song, but you just can't help but be a little let down at first by some of them. What did you think of the production? On like earbuds and smaller speakers, it sounded real thin and not great sounded very late 80s production wise to me mm-hmm. um but when i used uh you know better headphones and a better um and used a, a headphone amp it actually opened it up quite a bit and it added a lot of mid-range bass that i didn't hear previously and it sounded better i think there's some songs where it works better than others to me the slower songs sound pretty solid production wise and the mid-tempo songs sound pretty good i think some of the faster songs sound thin particularly like a song like um, maybe bad seed prayer that could also just be you know the quality of those songs to me are not they're okay they're just very average and the production is very unremarkable um on those it don't it's not like to me like prayer almost sounds like circus of power like and there's a couple songs on this record where this band goes into this like 
biker bar band sound that I just don't think it, 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 just on them. It just seems pedestrian. It just seems like, eh, okay. Like to really do that, you got to have some serious attitude coming across on the record and the performances and they don't quite have enough of that. So it just kind of sounds like unremarkable, you know, and I don't think the production in those cases really do anything to help them either. See, I actually thought, and maybe, I don't know, maybe I don't have the high-end speakers or headphones that you're talking about, but I just thought the production sounded for 1993 fairly solid. You know, it could have, this is a band out of the 80s, and this is a this is an album that could have easily gotten into that, you know, could have gotten a little too reverby and just too much layering, and it could have, it could have gotten bad. And I felt mm-hmm. like on the songs, like you mentioned, it actually sounds pretty solid. If, if anything, it's just not distinct. Um, yeah, it could, it yep. could be like kind of any band yep. playing those riffs. There's not a distinct guitar tone, um, yep. and I think that partly partly that might be due to the fact that this is a band that didn't, you know, they like I mentioned, they had a lot of people through the band. So, and if you listen to anything, anything, you know, from almost eight or nine years earlier to this, it sounds like a different band. Um, it's just it, you know it's a different style style and different sound and then one you know another band that came up a bunch of times was the replacements yeah um and in tracing you know the replacements earlier stuff and then to their later stuff kind of reminded me of this the evolution like anything anything could have been a replacement song that Paul Westerberg did when you know they were doing Hoot Nanny or Tim or one of those more ragged albums whereas this record in parts reminded me of those really late and the last replacements albums like all shook down where it's very kind of middle of the road big label production that doesn't really like it sounds compressed for radio and it doesn't have the same bite and the same sort of raggedness that the earlier stuff did and i I've, i've read a lot of reviews where people are talking about how you know the the band left at their peak but i don't feel like production wise this helps them out a lot it might have helped for radio at the time maybe this is the right compression and the right tones and everything for radio in 1993 and that's what they were shooting for yeah. if this was their last gasp they wanted to you know make that take that last shot but in terms of making like the you know this quote unquote timeless album it, it, I don't feel like it sounds as timeless as it could, especially considering the influences that are going into it. Yeah, 
Uh, and that's what I was kind of going for. It doesn't. The production isn't bad. It's just not complimentary of the material. It just sounds generic. And yeah, sometimes the material's good enough that generic's okay. And there's other times where the material isn't. It's not bad material. It's just kind of not spectacular. And and some records, when you have material like that, like a song like Prayer, you know, you can you can make that into a really cool album track through how you produce it. You know, you give it some edge, you give it some grit, you make it a little looser. And because they don't, and none of the songs are really produced that way on this record, you know, you end up with an average song with average production. So, right. you know, <laughs> you know, you're kind of, you're not really, uh, you're not elevating anything here with how it's produced. And I think you're right. I think it was, um, consciously mixed for radio there's a couple songs on here where like the drums oh i'm trying to find my notes here there's one where a drum intro is it might be prayer let me see here it's just ridiculously loud but there's you know some mixing things on here where you know oh it's bad seed you start bad seed out the drums are just like ridiculously loud for you know for what's going on and the vocals you know loud and it's very you know, bright and crisp sounding overall the record is. And that's why I said, if you, if you use some better gear, it opens up to the low end and the mids, which have some, a little bit more character to them, but you don't, uh, the way it's mixed, if you don't have that, it just kind of comes off as a, uh, you know, just really sparkly kind of on not very interesting radio production from the early nineties, late eighties to me. Yeah. And it's, it's a bit disappointing because I think that, Easdale has a good he's, he's he's got a good ear for melody and he's got a good sense of lyrics and he's got a good way to twist everything into an, a unique and interesting way it's just that the a lot of the music behind him is not necessarily just not punchy enough like it just it's sort of just needed a kick in the balls here and there especially on the rockers like you mentioned like some of the slower stuff is quite good in terms mm-hmm. of the how it's produced and and what the sounds are that they're playing with um, when it's more stripped down. It's just mm-hmm. some of the up-tempo stuff sounds just kind of bland. Well, like, uh, I think a good comparison is the um, Buffalo Tom record we just reviewed, you know? Mm-hmm. Material-wise, there's some similarities on some of this stuff in terms of, you know, mixing in acoustic, doing a little bit of a power-pop thing, having a slight... Uh, Bruce Springsteen, Americana, New Jersey kind of thing with the vocals sometimes. There's elements here that are, you know, in the same, you know, arena. Right. That album is produced incredibly, you know, incredible. And it adds so much to that, to that material. If that production would have been done here, I think we'd be talking about a different record with, with the same songs. You know, if they were just produced in that way, um, I think this would be a lot more powerful, a lot more time, timeless. I heard another band that came to mind was like the Smithereens, which had a similar yep. kind of production, real radio friendly, real crisp. But they wrote, I mean, that was a band that wrote very clear hooks. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Only a Memory or Girl Like You. Yep. Those are but, very hooky songs. Yeah. And, and to me, like a song like Bad Seed is, I feel like that's a, an attempt to be, to write a Smithereens type song. It's just, it's missing that hook that they had in there, so. 
know, even in anything, anything, the hook isn't until like the last third of the song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the he, verse is so strong though, and the and the the melodies, the guitar melodies, and everything are so strong. It's okay. And some in the most of this material, like in that regard, like we touched on earlier, it can work in that way. It just needs a little bit more help, and you know, sure, a better right. chorus is always great, you know, but. It doesn't mean a song a song can still be successful. It doesn't have, you know, the huge big chorus. So I think there's potential in here, the, in here for this material to be more successful than it is, I guess, is the, the way to sum that up. Well, then this did come out in 1993, which is, I believe, the year that, like, Pearl Jam's Verses came out. And I think you're talking wow. about... That album's really raw sounding. That's kind of a weird perspective to think about. Let me let me just double check because I don't want to you know speak out of my butt here. Um, but I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that '93 is the year of or is the year of uh, versus. Yeah, October '93 is when versus came out. So that's what this was competing against. Doesn't that? I mean, don't you think of versus as being pretty? You know, stripped down. Not, no, I think they got stripped down in Vitology. I think versus oh, okay. is the versus is the bridge between ten and Vitology. There's definitely some rawness on that record, like with Go and Animal and and those types of songs. But yeah. you still have like there's a lot of reverb still. There's still some reverb, uh, and yeah. you got like Glorified G and Daughter and uh, yeah. Dissident, which has a huge guitar lead part in that song and. Rearview Mirror, Elderly Woman, those types of songs. Um, but in terms of, you know, what was on the charts in 93, you know, this, this album's going to get lost, I think. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's not, that that is the height of grungedom. <laughs> to, yeah. You know, so... I don't know how I don't know how this album was ever going to break through, well, th- especially with this production. Um, let me see here. There was a little bit of like um, I remember rock radio still having room for things that were like the Black Crows, even though they were getting grittier at this time, and there there was room for some stuff that had a little bit more. Cry of Love, I think, was big around this time. Maybe there were like little bits and pieces of things left over with a slight classic rock, you know, spin. They would be like one song out of the entire rotation. So maybe that's what they were shooting for. I don't know. But yeah, it certainly doesn't have the more uh, dominant move towards a really raw, you know, more basic production. I mean, there's also like an aspect of this band that felt a little bit psychedelic. Like there's Mm -hmm. an element of that to their approach or probably maybe more more apparent in their earlier material but even on this record there's there's moments of that where you can kind of see uh, potentially there's some influence there so i think when you do that type of thing in a commercial way it comes off sounding potentially like this like you know what i mean like a lot of reverb and it ends up becoming like super sounding super produced instead of being slightly weird well, let's talk about our overall ratings on this record. 
worthy album, better EP, or decent single? Jay, where are you at? I'm at six songs. I like more of them than that. Really, it's it's the last three that I don't care for. I think there's a couple that, like I said, could be really saved by different production. But, you know, looking at it from face value for what it is, you know, it's probably an EP for me. Six songs, five to six. I'm in the same ballpark. For me, it's like four to five are really strong songs. And then you've got three or four songs that I can take or leave and a couple that I don't really care about. So I'm also at an EP. It's I think it's an interesting record, and I agree with people that say that, you know, this is a band that's worth checking out. I would like to go back and revisit some of their earlier albums that I've never listened to since I was completely off on what they sounded like. And this seems like an interesting, you know, later record from them. I'd like to go back and hear what album, uh, what the album sounds like that anything, anything came off of. See what that compare, how that compares. So to uh, clarify my point about maybe what they were going for in 93, here are some of the bands that were the top 20 of that year. So there's the obvious ones, Pearl Jam's, Nirvana's, Brad Chili Peppers. Cry of Love had two songs in the top 20 for the year. Really? Yes. Brother Kane. Do you remember them? I remember Brother Kane, yeah. They were also very like 70s classic rock sounding. Soul Asylum. Mm-hmm. Had a little bit of that to them. They had two songs. Lenny Kravitz, Are You Gonna Go My Way. Huge 70s classic mm-hmm. rock sound. Def Leppard had a had the number two song. Stand up, kick love into motion. Okay. So there was ACDC had a big song that year. Um, So there was a mix of, yeah, you had your alternative bands in there, but there was a mix of, you know, a little bit more polished classic stuff in there that I think that maybe they, they were trying to, maybe they're trying to bridge the gap, but there was definitely a precedent out there. But for what were the really big bands? You're talking about like Siamese Dream was released that year. You had huge singles off of Siamese Dream. You had Counting Crows put out their first record, and they had a bunch of, rec- you know, uh, Nirvana's In Utero came out that year. I mean... Uh, I'm looking at Sound Exchange for the year. Like, Rock, Temple the Dog, Def Leppard, Pearl Jam, Spin Doctor, Sting, Lenny Kravitz, Soul Psalm, Stone Temple Pilots, mm-hmm. ACDC, Aerosmith. This is the time of those Aerosmith ballads. Oh, yeah. John Mellencamp, Blind Melon. So Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Song called Go. What is that? I have no idea. Yeah. Anyway, it was, a, it was an interesting year. And this, regardless of what they were going for, I material sometimes was calling for something else. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, we need to thank... Gavin Reed, uh, he leads off the 2015 season with a uh, request to review. And, of course, we need to thank him. Thank everybody else who have made suggested reviews, both past, present, and future. We look forward to everything that's upcoming in terms of request to reviews. And if you'd like to make one, you can head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com and head up our request review page and make your own request Next week, we will be off of our review schedule. We'll be doing our first roundtable discussion, Jay. And uh, we'll see how that goes. It'll be an interesting uncharted territory for us. 
to uh, not review an album or, or base it around a review, an episode. So be interesting and not an interview either. Uh, we'll have a special guest, not giving it away. You'll have to find out when you tune in. And as always, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. That's it. First one's done, Jay. Nice. Yep. Fuck it. Only got uh, 51 more to go for the year. And then we are uh, into the 2016 season. Oh, it seems so far away, but yet it's not. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. 